My name is Christos Rosakis. I'm a professor of international law at the University of Athens and a judge at the European Court of Human Rights. Uh, the theme of my today's uh, lecture is uh, national jurisdiction and uh, state immunity in the case law of our court, of uh, the European Court of Human Rights, and mainly uh, the question of uh, how a regional court, uh, a regional international court, applying and interpreting the European Convention of Human Rights has contributed to the development of uh, the law on state immunity. Uh, the judgment of this court, as you probably know, uh, are binding and enforceable. And uh, as students of international law are well aware, binding judicial decisions, quite apart from uh, the impact that they have upon individual cases, are under Article 38 of the Statute of the International Court of Justice, which enumerates the sources of international law, and I quote, subsidiary means for the determination of the rules of law. Unquote. Given the rudimentary nature of the legislative edifice of international law, in practice, as Professor Cassese has said, uh, many decisions of the most authoritative courts are bound to have crucial importance in establishing the existence of customary law rules or in defining the scope and content or in promoting the evolution of new concepts. Hence, uh, the judgments of the European Court of Human Rights, which is one of the few international courts protecting human rights in the world, play their part in this semi-legislative role that, uh, namely, the particular nature of international law has this bestowed on international tribunals. Let me then start with the development of the law on state immunity in a more general context. Under international law, certain categories of physical or moral persons enjoy the privilege of being immune from the jurisdiction of national courts and from the execution of national decisions against them. States are in principle the main re recipients of this privilege and the prerogative is also extended under certain conditions to those representing them at the international level. A state enjoys immunity from the jurisdiction of foreign courts by virtue of the dictum par in parem non habet imperium, which means an equal has no power over another equal, which reflects the long-standing principle of international law that states are sovereign and independent entities and equal between them, and consequently the domestic courts of one state cannot supervise the acts or omissions of another state without its consent. As has been elo eloquently stated in the case of Underhill against Fernandez before the United States Supreme Court, which is a rather, let's say, ancient old case of uh, 1897, and I quote now, every sovereign state is bound to respect the independence of every other sovereign state, and the courts of one country cannot sit in judgment on the acts of the government of another done within its own territory." Unquote. However, state immunity as reflected in this dictum of the Supreme Court, of the United States Supreme Court, which indicates an absolute respect for states' acts and a total inability on the part of national courts to deal with matters involving the exercise of another state's power, has undergone considerable mutations in the, in the course of the 20th century. 
These mutations are essentially oriented towards a functional approach to the application of the doctrine of, of state immunity, namely that immunity applies when it genuinely serves the core functions of a state as a sovereign power, but does not apply in all circumstances and to all manifestations and activities in which a state may participate. The mutation in the approach from an absolute prohibition of interference by foreign courts in state acts to a relative and qualified interference is the result both of the expansion of states' involvement in areas customarily belonging to the private sphere of action, such as commercial acts or economic transactions of a free market nature, and at the same time of a gradual change in mentalities in international relations, which have become less, I would say, egocentric than they were in the not-so-distant past, and which accordingly attach greater importance to maintaining a certain equilibrium between the interest of the individual state on the one hand and the interest, interest of the international community on the other. The involvement of states in activities of a private law nature is by far the oldest reason for the erosion of absolute state immunity and its gradual replacement by a relative protection of states from foreign ju judicial control. This erosion had already begun at the end of the 19th century, when the first manifestations of states' involvement in activities of a private law nature had appeared. But it culminated in the first half of the 20th century, and specifically after the Russian Revolution, when the new state, the then new state, the USSR, began to develop policies of clear interference with market forces, replacing the private sector with its own omnipotent presence. Soon afterwards, the doctrine of state immunity underwent a fundamental transformation in order to adjust to the new realities. A distinction started to apply between state acts bearing the characteristics of acts jure imperi, which means sovereign acts, and those bearing the characteristics of jure gestionis, which means mainly commercial transactions. The first have continued to enjoy immunity from foreign jurisdiction, while the second have been assimilated to private sector acts not worthy of any particular jurisdictional protection in civil pro uh, proceedings before foreign courts. So a restrictive approach to jurisdictional immunity has thus emerged. However, involvement of states in activities of a private law nature has not been the only reason for the development of what I called the restrictive approach to the jurisdictional immunity of states. A gradual awakening of the international community's conscience with regard to the need to protect certain fundamental values and principles, which only then could guarantee the proper and disciplined operation of increasingly complex international relations, led to a reconsideration 
of the limits of state sovereignty and its constitutive elements. The lessons drawn from the two great wars, the First and the Second World War, have led states to assert that interests of the international community do not always coincide with the interests of each and every one of its constitutive parts, namely the individual states, and that in certain circumstances, preservation of the social fabric, of the social fabric of the international community, requires restrictions on state sovereignty and its attributes for the sake of the community's smooth functioning. How have these relatively new concerns affected the doctrine of state immunity? Strictly speaking, the principal role in the protection of community values and principles should lie with the institutions or the institution, if you like, of the community itself. When states and their agents transgress international law, protecting the fundamentals of the system, it is for the community to react and protect that system's integrity through both political or judicial means of an international nature. And it goes without saying that at that level, namely the international level, police of jurisdictional immunity cannot be sustained. The international community has made considerable progress in this domain, particularly since the end of the Second War. More specifically, impressive initiatives have occurred in the field of international criminal law through the emergence of rules on war crimes, crimes against humanity, including torture and genocide. These initiatives include, among other things, the Nuremberg Charter, the charter which, which punished those culprits of the Second World War, the Tokyo Charter, similarly, the Geneva Conventions, the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, the Convention Against Torture and Other Cruel, Inhuman and Degrading Treatment or Punishment, the creation lately of the International Criminal Court for the former Yugoslavia, the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, and, of course, the culmination, the permanent court, the International Criminal Court at The Hague. However, in this imperfect international community in which we all still live, the international instruments providing for both substantive and procedural laws and mechanisms to apply and interpret them do not always suffice to cope with the reparation of wrongs committed by individual states and their agents to the community's fundamental values. Hence, domestic courts, domestic jurisdictions may also intervene in certain circumstances and through criminal and or civil proceedings assist and complement the work of the international mechanisms. Here, of course, from the moment that we abandon the international sphere and we enter the constellation of national jurisdictions, the plea of impunity becomes relevant. States or their agents 
should before national courts, to which there is a jurisdictional link concerning a wrongful act by a foreign state, may attempt to bar the adjudication of the case by invoking immunity from jurisdiction. The question of whether national courts may disregard a plea of immunity with regard to acts of foreign states other than Jure gestionis activities is a difficult one to answer. And the answer does not depend solely on uh, whether there is enabling national legislation providing for substantive and procedural law, law to deal with the wrongdoings of a foreign state, but also, and I would say paramountly, whether international law allows such a course of action. The answer to this problem would certainly be easier to provide if a treaty to which all interested states are parties indicated a course of action enabling a national jurisdiction to intervene in a third state's wrongful act by disregarding a plea of immunity. In the absence of such a treaty, matters become more difficult. It seems that general international law, based on state practice, has not provided a definitive answer to this problem, and still conflicting signals have been given by national and international fora in this respect. In its 1989 report on jurisdictional immunities of states and their property, a working group of the International Law Commission found that over the preceding decade, namely in the 80s and 90s, <coughs> a number of civil claims had been brought in domestic courts particularly in the United States and in the United Kingdom, against foreign governments, arouse, arising out of acts of torture committed in the territory of the defendant or other states. The working group found that national courts had in some cases shown sympathy for the argument that states are not entitled to plead immunity where there has been a violation of human rights norms with the character of use cogens, namely peremptory norms of international law, although in most cases the plea of sovereign immunity had succeeded. The working group did, however, note two developments which, in its opinion, gave support to the argument that a state could not plead immunity in respect to gross human rights violations. One of these was the judgment by the United Kingdom's House of Lords in Ex parte Pinochet. The other was the amendment by the United States of its Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act to include in this act a new exception to immunity. This exception introduced by Section 221 of the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996, applies in respect of claims for damages for personal injury or death caused by an act of torture, extrajudicial killing, aircraft sabotage or hostage-taking, 
against a state designated by the Secretary of State as a sponsor of terrorism, where the claimant or victim was a national of the United States at the time that the act occurred. The House of Lords judgments in Pinochet can be considered to my mind the locus classical up to date of a restrictive approach to immunity. Although the case concerns the immunity of a foreign head of state from criminal prosecution, Mr. Pinochet, the lessons which can be drawn from the House of Lords decision are more general and concern both state immunity and the immunity of state agents. Indeed, the main line followed by the law lords was that the commission of serious international crimes, which are condemned by the international community as unacceptable breaches of international law, cannot constitute the official function of any state official. Transposing this argument to the domain of state immunity, one can easily conclude that the state cannot claim immunity in a case of a gross violation of international law, such as war crimes, genocide, crimes against humanity, because the commission of such heinous acts falls outside the purview of state's function itself. This, I would say, functional approach based on a value-oriented restriction of state immunity seems to accord with a more general condemnation by the international community of gross violation of international law as reflected in the development of substantive rules on the matter. But also in the setting up of a number of international mechanisms, mainly of a judicial nature, which are intended to punish such violations in a rather, I would say, effective manner. And indeed, it would be asymmetrical if, on the one hand, the international community strove to bring to justice and punish grave violations of human rights and uh, mainly of international law more general, and on the other, firmly closed its eyes when the same category of cases went before national courts where, of course, pleas of immunity completely, could completely neutralize the latter court's capacity to participate in the administration of justice by duty permitting or sanctioning the culprits of these heinous acts. Nonetheless, while such approach seems to be reasonable, the signals sent by other fora do not indicate unanimous approval for the House of Lords judgment. A major blow to the trend developed uh, by the House of Lords judgment was the judgment by the National Court of Justice in the case of arrest warrant, a case between the Democratic Republic of the Congo on the one hand and Belgium on the other in 2002. The case concerned an arrest warrant issued by the Belgian courts against an incumbent minister who actually committed serious, allegedly committed serious war crimes 
and crimes against humanity. Before the World Court, Belgium, one of the parties to the dispute, contested that an exception to the immunity rule was accepted in the case of serious crimes against international law. <coughs> it referred in particular to the House of Law judgments in Pinochet, which I already referred, and to the French Courts of Cassation judgment in Gaddafi. Belgium argued that the Pinochet decision had recognized an exception to the immunity rule when one of the main judges who actually produced the judgment, Lord Millet, stated, and I quote here, international law cannot be supposed to have established a crime having the character of a huge cogence and at the same time provided an immunity which is coextensive with the obligation it tries to impose, unquote. Or again, when Lord Phillips of Worth Matravers, another judge in this case, found, and I quote again, that no established rule of international law requires state immunity ratione materie to be accorded in respect of prosecution for an international crime, unquote. As to the French Court of Cassation, dealing with the case of Gaddafi, Belgium contended that in holding, and again I quote, under international law, as it currently stands, the crime alleged, which was a crime of terrorism, irrespective of its gravity, does not come within the exceptions to the principle of immunity from jurisdiction for incumbent foreign heads of state, unquote. And then Belgium, on the basis of that reference, said that in a way the Court of Cassation in France had recognized the existence of exceptional situations. The International Court of Justice did not accept Belgium's submissions. It concluded, and uh, I quote again, that it has been unable to deduce from the state practice that there exists under customary international law any form of exception to the rule according immunity from criminal jurisdiction and inviolability to incumbent ministers of foreign affairs where and when they are suspected of having committed war crimes or crimes against humanity." Unquote. Equally, the World Court concluded that the written rules provided for by various international instruments did not enable the court to consider that any such exception exists in customary international law in respect of national courts. It further noted, and I quote again, the rules governing the jurisdiction of national courts must be carefully distinguished from those governing jurisdictional immunities. Jurisdiction does not imply absence of immunity, while absence of immunity does not imply jurisdiction. Thus, although various international conventions on the prevention and punishment of certain serious crimes impose on states obligations of prosecution or extradition,
thereby requiring them to extend their criminal jurisdiction. Such extension of jurisdiction in no way affects immunities under customary international law, including those of ministers of foreign affairs. This remains opposable before the courts of a foreign state, even where those courts exercise such a jurisdiction under these conventions." Unquote. Although, admittedly, the arrest warrant case concerned the issue of jurisdictional immunity of an incumbent Minister of Foreign Affairs, and at the same time of the exercise of what we call universal jurisdiction against him, the manner in which the International Court dealt with the matter leaves little room to argue that the conclusions reached in the judgment affect the more general issue of state immunity. I would say that we can easily deduce from the arrest warrant case that the International Court of Justice was convinced that even in situations of grave violations of international law, the plea of jurisdictional immunity remains intact and can be validly invoked before and against, of course, national courts. The judgment of the International Court of Justice in the arrest warrant has influenced a number of subsequent national adjudications of cases bearing similarities to the case examined by that court. In at least three cases, national courts were influenced by its pronouncements and also by that of the European Court of Human Rights in Alajani case to which I'll come later. And these were actually or are the three basic cases. A case against uh, Germany in civil claims regarding the massacre committed by German forces in Distomo, it's a place in Greece, during the country's occupation in the Second World War. The multi-member Livadia court has denied immunity to Germany by referring to the crimes as violating Jus Cogens rules of the international community. That ruling was upheld by the Court of Cassation of Greece, but ultimately, and this matters, the highest Greek judicial authority refused execution by arguing that Germany enjoyed immunity in this respect. Equally, when the same case went to German courts for execution again, it was also dismissed by the German courts. The final finding by the Budensgerichtshof ruled that the judgment of the Greek highest court could not be enforced in Germany and that the massacres complained of were the exercise of sovereign power and thus fell within the scope of state immunity. A second case, the case of Husang Butsari against Iran, in which the plaintiff claimed damages before the Ontario, Canada, Supreme Court of Justice for torture allegedly suffered by him. The case was examined on the basis of the Canadian State Immunity Act and the High Court there decided, taking into account the arrest warrant 
and also the Alajani judgment, which I would refer to later, that Iran was immune before national courts for breaches of the Yugoslavian rule prohibiting torture. In the case of Roland Grant Jones against Saudi Arabia, arising from acts of torture inflicted upon the plaintiff by, ag by agents of this country, the House of Lords partially reversed the Court of Appeal ruling and found in favor of complete immunity for Saudi Arabia in the case. The law lords denied that the rule of Yuskogen's prohibiting torture had any bearing on the valid invocation of a plea of state immunity. Now, a notable exception to this neg negationist trend, which followed the arrest uh, warrant judgment and that of Alajani, is the decision by the Italian Supreme Court in the case of Luigi Ferizzi, a person who was deported to Germany during the Second World War and forcibly employed in the war industry. The lower Italian courts declined jurisdiction on the basis of immunity, but the Supreme Italian Court overturned them, holding that Germany was not immune from jurisdiction because the crimes allegedly committed by Germany violated Yuskogen's rules, and these rules have an overriding effect upon all other rules of international law conflicting with them. The Italian court also stressed that the question was not whether, in the circumstances of that case, the violations of international law committed by Germany could be characterized as sovereign acts because they were undoubtedly, undoubtedly sovereign acts of a use imperial nature, but whether a state may validly invoke a plea of immunity when its behavior constitutes an international crime of a magnitude that jeopardizes the ecumenical values of the international community. In this respect, the Ferigi judgment seems to differ from the House of Lords judgment in Pinochet. In the latter case, the majority of judges seem to have accepted that the commission of grave international crimes does not enter into the field of a state's functions as they are determined by international law. While the Italian Court of Cassation accepted them as sovereign acts, which, because of the heinous nature, did not deserve the protective privilege of a plea of jurisdictional immunity. I come now to the contribution of the European Court of Human Rights to the development of the law of state immunity. I would say that from the above discussion on the development of the law of state immunity, it clearly transpires that a certain uncertainty persists as to the exact content of the rules. While the dichotomy between jure imperii and jure gestionis acts and their relevance to the validity of a plea of immunity seems to enjoy the wide and continuing approval of uh, international uh, law. Uh, still, the question is whether within the sphere 
of Euro Imperi Acts, there is a possibility of disregarding a plea of immunity. In this area, both domestic courts and international courts have in recent years given conflicting answers to the paramount question of whether all Euro Imperi Acts, without exception, merit the protection of jurisdiction immunity or that there are many there are possible exceptional circumstances allowing for the departure of this main rule. The European Court of Human Rights has developed its own case law in the area of state immunity and has consequently participated in the law defining process through a number of decisions. Indeed, this regional court specialized in the protection of human rights, has on a number of occasions dealt with state immunity essentially under Article 6 of the European Convention of Human Rights, which covers what we call the right to a fair trial. More particularly, the issue which has brought Article 6 into play with regard to state immunity has been the right of access to a court in situations where applicants to the court complained of their inability to sue a state before national courts in circumstances where a plea of immunity from jurisdiction was raised by a particular defendant state. The guarantee of access to a court is not expressly provided for in Article 6 but has been enunciated by Strasbourg Court as one of its fundamental aspects to be inferred from the object and purpose of the provision. In the judgment of Gorder against the United Kingdom, the court found that the procedural guarantees laid down in Article 6 concerning fairness, publicity and promptness would be meaningless in the absence of any prior protection for the enjoyment of those guarantees, namely the possibility of an access to a court. That judgment established the right of access as an inherent part of the safeguards enshrined in Article 6 by inferring it from the principles of the rule of law and the avoidance of arbitrary power, which underlie large parts of the Convention, but like most guarantees of the Convention, this right is not absolute. As it will be pointed out later on, it may subject to limitations. In three cases, which are essentially the leading cases of the European Court of Human Rights on matters of state immunity, the Strasbourg Court, the European Court, has had the opportunity to evaluate the relevant rules of international law and to rule accordingly. These are the cases of Arajani and Fogarty against the United Kingdom and of Mac El Hinei against Ireland. A fourth case, that of Kalogeropoulou and others against Greece and Germany, was declared inadmissible by a chamber of the court 
which thereby followed faithfully the jurisprudential precedent of Adajani and Mac Elhine. The case of Adajani led to a judgment of principle with regard to the limits of a plea of immunity in a civil case adjudicated by the United Kingdom courts. The applicant, a British Kuwaiti national, complained that the British courts had failed in violation of Articles 6 and 13 of the European Convention to secure his right of access to a court by granting immunity to the state of Kuwait against which he had brought civil proceedings for torture suffered while detained by the authorities in Kuwait. On the basis of the materials submitted to it, the court proceeded first to reject the government's contention that the applicant's claim had no legal basis in domestic law since, according to the government, any substantive right which might have existed was extinguished by operation of the doctrine of state immunity. The court, the Strasbourg court, held that an action against the state was not barred in limine, namely from the first, first very moment. Because, and this is the main argument, if the defendant state waived immunity, the action would lead to a hearing and eventually to a judgment. So the court said the grant of immunity is to be seen not as, a qual as qualifying a substantive right, but as a procedural bar on the national court's power to determine the right. On this issue, the court reflected, the, I would say, the generally uncontested approach that in the absence of inter partes conventional law to the contrary, customary international law on immunity is use dispositivum, namely allow states to deviate from its contents and decide if they so wish to leave national jurisdiction to determine the merits of a case before them, by waiving, of course, the right of protection against foreign jurisdictional intervention in their sovereignty. Then the court began to examine the merits of the applicant's complaints. Having reiterated its constant approach to the right of access to a court, namely that it is not absolute but it's subject to limitations, it proceeded to its usual exercise of determining whether the limitation in question, namely the plea of immunity, pursued a legitimate aim. It concluded that the grant of sovereign immunity in civil proceedings pursued the legitimate aim of complying with international law to promote committee and good relations between states through the respect of another state's sovereignty. Equally, in examining the proportionality of the measure vis-à-vis -vis the protected right of access, the court found that the grant of immunity, and I quote here, reflects generally recognized rules of public international law on state immunity, 
cannot in, and cannot in principle be regarded as imposing a disproportionate restriction on the right of access. Some restrictions, the court said, on access must be regarded as inherent. An example being those limitations generally accepted by the community of nations as part of the doctrine of state immunity." Unquote. Here, the court took a clear stance on the exact nature of the relevant rules of international law. Contrary to various sparse indications of state practice, but mainly contrary to some of the writings of international law literature, which support the opinion that state immunity is not firmly rooted in customary international law, the Strasbourg court sided with the predominant state practice and attributed a customary law character to the rules on state immunity. Uh, and this is, of course, something which, in the end, negates the position of the practice to which I referred or to the, as I said, to the writings of some international lawyers who contend an opposite view. Now, the main substantive issue that was decided by the court was the applicant's submission that his claim related to torture and that the prohibition of torture has acquired the status of a norm of use cogens in international law, taking precedence over treaty law or other rules of general international law. The European Court readily accepted the, applicant claim, the applicant's claim that the prohibition of torture was a use cogent rule. In doing so, it relied on its own case law, on other international instruments underlining the particular importance of that rule as bearing a fundamental value of the international community, and on the judgment of the International Criminal Tribunal of the former Yugoslavia in the Furungia case. More particularly, it stated, and here I quote, Within the European Convention system, it has long been recognized that the right under Article 3 not to be subjected to torture or to inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment enshrines one of the fundamental values of a democratic society. It is an absolute right permitting of no exception in any circumstances. And it continues. Other areas of public international law bear witness to a growing recognition of the overriding importance of the prohibition of torture. Thus, torture is forbidden by Article 5 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and Article 7 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. The United Nations Convention Against Torture and Other Cruel, Inhuman and Degraded Treatment of Punishment requires by Article 2 
that each state party should take effective legislative, administrative, judicial or other measures to prevent torture in any territory under its jurisdiction and by Article 4 that all acts of torture should, may, should may be made offenses under the state party's criminal law. In addition, there have been a number of judicial statements to the effect that the prohibition of torture has attained the status of a peremptory norm of international law. For example, in the judgment of 10 December 1998 in Furungia, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia referred inter alia to the foregoing body of treaty rules and held that because of the importance of the values it protects, this principle prescribing torture has evolved into a peremptory norm of use cordials. Similar statements have been made in other cases before that tribunal and in national courts, including the House of Lords in the case of ex parte Pinochet, to, to which I had already referred. Yet, while accepting that the prohibition of torture has acquired the status of a Wisconsin's room, norm, thus leading its authority to the consolidation of the nature of that rule in international law, the court observed, and here I quote again, the present case concerns not, as in Furungia and Pinochet, the criminal liability of an individual for alleged acts of torture, but the immunity of a state in a civil suit for damages in respect of acts of torture within the territory <coughs> of that state. Notwithstanding the special character of the prohibition of torture in international law, the court is unable to discern in the international instruments, judicial authorities or other materials before it, any firm basis for concluding that as a matter of international law, a state no longer enjoys immunity from civil suits in the court of another state where acts of torture are alleged to have been committed. In particular, the court observes that none of the primary international instruments referred to relates to civil proceedings." Unquote. And of course, it continued, and here there is another quotation and the final one. The court, while noting the growing recognition of the overriding importance of the prohibition of torture, does not find established that is yet acceptance in the international law of the proposition that states are not entitled to immunity in respect of civil claims for damages for alleged torture committed outside the forum state." Unquote. A number of useful conclusions can be drawn from this dicta of the court. More particularly, a. The court does not seem to doubt that states acting 
in gross violation of fundamental rules of international law, such as the rules concerning crimes against humanity, torture is one of the crimes against humanity, still act within the perimeter of their normal sovereign functions. In consequence, it did not align itself with the position that when a state acts in violation of such fundamental rules, it acts outside its ordinary normal functions, which under this position, not accepted by the court, cannot include the commission of heinous crimes as their constitutive parts. The logical consequence of this latter position is that states acting outside the normal functions cannot enjoy immunity and hence the wrongdoings in this field are subject to jurisdiction without impediment at the international and national level. But as I said, that approach was not accepted by the court's findings. B. Second conclusion. The Strasbourg court accepted that state immunity is not absolute, even for acts performed jure imperi. Hence, it extended the restrictive approach on state immunity to these acts as well. This conclusion can be reached from the fact that the court agreed with the findings of Furungia and Pinochet judgments as reflecting the current state of international law. Indeed, the court admitted that the limitation on state immunity can occur through the invalidating action of hierarchically superior legal rules on dispositive rules, which are, of course, rules of an inferior character. C, a third conclusion. In this respect, the court, in examining the interplay of Jus-Cogen's norms with rules of state immunity, engaged in an exploration of the nature and operation of the former norms in the field of international legal relations. Its analysis on the matter, although it's a succinct analysis, contains some useful elements which assist in further clarification and consolidation of the concept in international law. I'm speaking of the concept of use consciousness, of course. And more specifically, the court accepted first that the prohibition of torture is a use consciousness norm. It has thus added its authority to that of other national or international organs which have adhered to such a conclusion. Second, the judgment in Al-Ajani implicitly admitted that the operation of Jus-Cogen's norm is no longer dependent solely on its initial conventional foundation, namely the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, but has been extended to bilateral or multilateral relations which are not necessarily governed by the inter-parties arrangement of the Vienna Convention. In this respect, the court has followed a well-established practice 
which asserts that although the concept of use cogence, with its overwhelming function, has become part of positive international law through its inclusion in the text of the Vienna Convention, and more particularly in the latter's articles 53 and 64, subsequent developments have disentangled this particular concept from its original conventional hurdles. Today, Yuskogin's norms, with their, their invalidating power, work equally within and outside the ambit of the Vienna Convention. Third, the contribution of the Alajani judgment goes beyond the simple acceptance that the Yuskogin's norms have an independent life from the, the, the one bestowed on them by the Vienna Convention. By implicitly admitting that the conflict between the prohibition of torture, which is a use cogent norm, of course, and the rules of state immunity can have, under certain circumstances, a devastating impact upon the latter, the court accepted the sweeping character of use cogent norms in general. In essence, it accepted that Yuskogin's norms have the potential not only to invalidate rules of international law conflicting with their contents, but also to invalidate rules which, while having no conflict of content with peremptory norm, may still prevent its effective application. Indeed, the rules of state immunity which are rules attributing a procedural privilege to states, enabling them not to be subjected to the jurisdiction of a foreign state, do not, as such, conflict with the content of the U.S. Cogens norm prohibiting torture. They may simply affect its unimpeded application by preventing courts from sanctioning wrongdoers who have transgressed the rule of prohibition of torture. At this juncture, and I'm finishing with that, it must be pointed out that the court, while accepting that torture belongs to the category of use cogent norms and that its function entails the neutralization of any international rule of a dispositive nature affecting its course of application, refused to draw the relevant conclusions and to find that in the circumstances of the Al-Ajani case, the peremptory norm prohibiting torture had an invalidating effect on the plea of state immunity that, and that as a consequence, British courts had jurisdiction to entertain the civil complaints of the victim of, alleging, of alleged torture. In this respect, the majority of the court made a dubious distinction between criminal cases, such as were the Furungia and Pinochet cases, where practice indicates that the effect of the use cogent norms has what I call a devastating effects, and civil cases, like the one before us today, where according to the majority, no indication of practice exists to show that the interplays of the use cogent norms 
with the use dispositive norms produces invalidating effects on the latter norms, namely the use dispositive norms.